Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-412 of the Run Run Live podcast. And you'll have to forgive us, forgive me here, there's going to be some episode incongruity, a non-linear scrap of publishing. I had a couple of interviews stack on top of each other, the way you stack your hips in a yoga pose, and apparently in the race to your ears, episode 412 went out over episode 411. Confused? Yeah, don't don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Today, this week, you'll get episode 4-412, an interview by my friend Alex, longtime participant, friend of the Run Run Live podcast experience. He will be interviewing another longtime friend of the show, Mary Rowe Mendez, who ran Comrades this year. And I'm always, always fascinated with Comrades. Seems like such a foreign place, an extreme adventure. And both Alex and Mary Rowe are world travelers. I have yet to make it to Africa, except maybe through enjoying a good read of The Heart of Darkness. In section one, I'm going to give you the rundown on my cow pasture race. (laughs) And I got some positive feedback on that uncertainty essay from the last show, so thank you for that. I certainly appreciate it. And that last episode wasn't easy to write. I felt really jacked up about just stuff in general. Had a lot on my mind. And I need a certain amount of alone time and contemplation to get those creative juices flowing. And I just couldn't get settled for that last show. But that has been solved. I took vacation. Yes, Just my wife and I down on Cape Cod, enjoying the beautiful weather, soaking up the sea breezes, very peaceful. No internet, just reading and relaxing. So you're going to get a little bit of that in this show. And in section two, I have a uh, vacation story for you of sorts. I took five days off from running and riding due to a sore knee last week. It was one of those things where I probably tried to do too much too fast. And in this case, the too much part had to do with going mountain bike riding with Anthony. And don't get me wrong, I love Anthony. Anthony has taught me an unrepayable number of useful things about bikes and riding 
over the last decade. He's a great enabler. But for my second ride in the woods in two years, he overestimates my ability. And I, on my part, feel compelled to try to keep up like a boy trying to please his dad. Anthony's my uh, my mountain bike mentor. So I ended up bleeding from four different wounds at the end of the night. Nothing life-threatening, just those those slow-speed, slow-motion crashes that stalk you when you haven't gotten the miles in yet. That little bit of uncertainty, that spoonful of tentativeness as you, as you go into an obstacle, those few millimeters off your line that you find you're wide in the turns and stuck in the bad spots and hitting trees. You might call it anti-flow. As opposed to being in flow, it's anti-flow. And in one of these slow-speed crashes, I couldn't clip out and took the full weight of mass times acceleration due to the force of gravity on a pointy rock with my left knee. It hurt a bit, didn't feel consequential at the time, but over the next week, it just ached a bit as I kept up my running and cycling. And finally, with the race in the cow pasture Wednesday night, going hard on uneven ground, and the knee seemed to be a bit more sore than it should be after a week, so I did the smart thing and took a few days off. I was a bit worried I might lose fitness, but I managed to get over myself and do a little core work, a little yoga instead. Still a little sore, but I think it's on the mend. We'll see. I guess I just don't heal as fast as I used to. But I feel pretty good. It's summertime. And the days are long, and what can be wrong with that? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Lonely Cows. The Gibbet Hill Grill Relay Race. It was a last-minute thing. It is a cross-country type race on a cow farm in Groton, where I grew up, but not any random cow farm. I may have personal connections to this cow farm. And if you sit or stand on the backside of the Lawrence Academy in Groton, Massachusetts, and look out towards the northeast, on the other side of the athletic fields where I played frisbee and practiced golf strokes, on the other side of the hill where we ran repeats for cross-country practice on the other side of where our cross-country course traversed a grassy slope to plunge down for a last lap of the fields and out on the golf course to turn around that ancient maple tree onto the final dirt road stretch up to the finish line at the 50-yard line of the football field, legs pissing, hearts pounding, lungs bursting, yes, there, on the other side of Route 40 where we ran on cold December afternoons to condition ourselves for wrestling practice, there, on that steep hill in the cow pasture, wrapped around the castle where adolescent hearts may have raced in romance on prep school afternoons, like something from a Fitzgerald short story, out there, as you stand or sit and gaze, you'll see a green and bucolic cow pasture with a ruin of stonework on the crest, but I, my friends, might see much, much more. This race is in a cow pasture, but it was a race in a familiar place. 
I originally wanted to put a team in of my own with my training buddies, but they weren't available. Two of the ladies from my club needed a body to fill out their team, so I jumped in. It's a charity event, and if I had more time, I'm sure I could have adequately filled their coffers, but as it was, it ended up being a buy-in. It is a three-person relay race on a rough 1.2-mile loop course. Each relay member does the loop twice. You carry a baton-shaped vegetable. Some teams had eggplants, some rhubarb stalks. We had a large carrot. And I suppose there's a metaphor there somewhere. The course is something unique. I'll try to walk you through it. It starts behind the restaurant in an open lawn of soft grass, clipped short and squishy. And with all the rain we've been having, the grass has a deep emerald lushness, like an expensive golf course where you sink in with each step. Not wet, but spongy. Not the best surface for trying to move with speed. The weather was good, warm and sunny, late June afternoon, one of the longest days of the year, mid to high 70s with no wind, a beautiful day, a beautiful afternoon, too hot for a marathon, but perfect for a 1.2 mile dash through a cow pasture. From the stacked hay bale start line, you rise up across the soft lawn to a dirt road, and all of this race course is, on other days, an active cow farm. They have a special herd of Angus there, and I suppose I need to explain what an Angus is. It's a large black cow bred for meat, and they are impressive creatures. Those same said Angus are sequestered and partitioned to a side paddock for the race, and they let us know that they were not at all happy about this. They load protesting at us as we careened off the dirt road to cross the paddock proper. There is no way to keep a cadence or pace in the paddock. With the soft ground, the herd had peppered it with cowfoot-shaped holes, hundreds of them, four to six inches deep, all these holes in close proximity to each other, like the grid of a maniacally hole-punched piece of paper. You couldn't avoid them. Throw in some cow crap for good measure, some tall grass and some mud, and it's all you can do not to break an ankle or fall down. I'm an experienced trail runner, but I could find no secret foot-placing ritual to maintain speed or cadence through this, just mincing along and swearing a bit. It was a real ankle tester. Across a slippery bridge over a muddy patch, which was actually a piece of plywood thrown over the gully, out of the paddock, up the side of a hill with a single-track cow path on it, and I don't know how animals so large can make a trail so skinny and treacherous. You could grab a few easy strides here and there, but it's still treacherous. There were volunteers out there to direct you through the turns, but it was a bit like an open country fell race in that you could choose to cut the corners or run off the trail, which many did, either by accident or through insanity. Now, maybe a half mile in, it turns a corner and slams you up a fairly significant lung-busting climb through a field speckled with cow pies and people walking who felt like cow pies in the full sun. If you manage to keep your head at the start, you could take some places here. If you didn't keep your head, this was where you started walking. 
Nearing the top of this couple hundred foot climb, you come back onto a semi-civilized dirt road of sorts and can start to relax a bit for a couple hundred easy feet of downhill running before being routed hard left through the ruins of a tessellated country house known locally as the castle. And this is a fun detour, but it's not the last. As you slam hard right down the other side of the steep hill you just conquered, it's a bit of a free fall on uneven muddy ground. Surviving this, you get a rolling trail section along the road with some actual sucking mud pits that saw some competitors emerge carrying one of their muddy shoes in hand to the finish. From the road, you gather yourself back down onto the lawn, trying in vain to look fit and athletic for the crowd, and the relay transition point or finish, depending on your lot. As familiar as I was with the territory, I did not know the course. I had a brief overview from some of my clubmates who had run it last year, but you know how that is, especially a course like this. Very hard to adequately describe its varied quirkiness. The second lap was better, as you had acclimated and warmed up a bit and knew the lay of the land, but I get ahead of myself. I was a couple weeks into my say-yes-to-everything campaign of anti-training when I heard of this race. Thomas, from our club, who sometimes runs our long runs with us on Sundays, he described it to me. And Thomas is a running club success story. He started running with us a few years back when he was just starting high school, I think. And his mom would drop him at the club events. And back then, a couple of us old-timers could almost make a good show of pushing the runs with him. Not now. Now he's going into his senior year, and he's in the low fours for the mile. And you can tell it's painful for him to run those nine-minute miles with us. Anyhow, Thomas put together a high school team for the race last year, and they smoked it. On this difficult, uneven terrain, they averaged around five-minute miles to take the prize. And he was running with a less stacked team this year and lamented that their times would be so much slower. My team was Kerry and Christine, a couple of longtime club runners, up to the task. And I got there a full 10 minutes before the start of the race, which in Chris' time is like a century early. And still, they were worried. They were pre preparing to replace me by the time I got there. So Kerry wanted to take the first leg. Christine wanted to take the middle leg. So I got the anchor, which was fine with me. There was nothing about this race that required any preparation and or worrying. The last time I ran a race of this distance was probably in prep school myself, just across Route 40 on the cross-country course. And that would have been 40 plus years ago. My strategy was to show up and run. My A goal was to not die in the process and to have fun. And I honestly don't know what kind of warm-up would be appropriate for a man of my um, vintage for a 1.2-mile cow pasture run, so I didn't bother. Our team number was 69, and I swear I had nothing to do with that. Christine picked up the bibs. They were color-coded red, white, and blue for the three legs, but I did pin mine on upside down, just to favor my inner 13-year-old with a bit of irony. There were probably 300 people, all told, so 100 in each leg. And it was hard. Taking that carrot for the anchor leg, I was redlined from the start and not moving all that fast. Dancing through the cow paddock was more work and less speed 
I messed up starting my watch and had to hit it about a quarter mile in. I hiked a bit on the uphill. I wasn't giving it a hundred percent. I was just trying to do it justice and not die. When I finally got some cadence going on the back side of the hill, I was thinking to myself, geez, I hope I don't get lapped by Thomas because he was running the first leg and their team was minutes, way, like way ahead of the nearest, next nearest team. And sure enough, before I got off the hill, I heard the hoof beats behind me and Thomas went blowing by. So we got lapped. And I handed off the carrot and took a breather. My mid-packer teammates would give me a good 20 to 25 minutes before I had to run the uh, anchor lap into the finish. So the second time around was much, much better. Now that I knew the course and I could run more tactically and use some of my experience and I passed a lot of people, I got to the downhill. I was able to let my foot off the brake and fly a bit. And I pushed hard through the finish and was bent over, breathing hard and happy at the end. Satisfied. Even with my decent effort level there, my watch said I was averaging nine-minute miles. <laughs> Meh. But it was fun, and I saw a lot of people I knew. It was a good charity crowd. People were there to have fun. It wasn't the preachy charity crowd. And we got one free Narragansett beer, which is way better than the Michelob Ultra they try to give you at some of these. And rumor had it that there was barbecue, but I had to skedaddle. I had a call. I'm going to give give this race a thumbs up. I'm going to call it a success, although it made my knee injury mad with all the uneven ground. I had fun, and it was good to be part of something familiar in a familiar place. And I'll probably do it again next year and make sure I leave enough time to do some decent fundraising. It would be even better if they let the cows run free. Yeah, the running of the bulls. That would be cool. And now for today's featured interview. Hi, Mary Mary. Mary Mary Mendez, nice of you to join us today. Thanks for hooking up and agreeing to be interviewed by the, the podcast. I know you're a long, long time listener to Run Run Live. And of course, you and I have, have met each other before and I know quite a bit about your running, but the folks listening won't. So can you just give us a little bit of background as to yourself and, and how you got into running? Uh, yeah, first, so uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited because, as you said, I've been listening to the podcast uh, for many, many years. I started running about 15 years ago in London, actually. I remember my first race was a 10K around High Park. Kind of uh, grew from there. I started running to eat, I think, and then now I'm I'm eating to run. And my first marathon was a New York City marathon in 2011. And I've probably done about uh, 14 marathons uh, since then. And I just recently completed the Comrades Marathon, which is actually an ultra marathon, but they call it Comrades Marathon. Superb, yeah. And can't wait to hear a little bit more about that. What led up to Comrades? Why did that suddenly appear on the bucket list or is it, has it always been there? Well, it's been in the back of my mind for a few years. And my main kind of long-term running goal has been to run the six World Marathon Majors, of which I've done five. I've been trying to get into Tokyo a few times. And last year, once again, I failed to get into the Tokyo Marathon. So I was 
thinking about what I wanted to do, main goal in terms of running for 2019. And um, that's when uh, Cambridge uh, came into my mind uh, because I always said, well, I'm never going to be doing an ultra marathon. And then I was like, if I ever do an ultra, it's got to be Cambridge. So I kind of uh, started introducing the idea to my husband. I wanted to do the race, but that means traveling to South Africa. So it's important to involve the family. And yeah, he kind of uh, got into the idea. He actually started researching a little bit more about the country. And when he said to me, yes, go ahead, let's do it. Yeah, it became real last October. Okay, superb. So for those that don't know the Comrades Marathon or its history or where it is even and what it is, can you just give us a little bit of a an insight into the race itself and, and why, therefore, it was such an important race for you to play. Yeah, um, Comrades is an ultramarathon. It's an 87K race. It is in South Africa and it starts in Durban. And actually, they switch direction every year. So they call it an up run one year and then the following year would be a down run. And that's because most of the elevation gain, for example, this year was an up run because most of the uh, elevation changes is, is in a gain, in net gain. Then next year would be a down run because it goes mostly downhill, but that doesn't mean uh, that you don't go uphill. It's actually a pretty, uh, it's one of the toughest ultramarathons in the world also because being on roads. And the history behind that is been running for 98 years already is a really big deal in South Africa. And uh, from a competitive standpoint is, is internationally is again, very competitive race that uh, the best athletes in the world come to from the ultra scene come to race in South Africa every year. It's an incredible race and now I understand why they say it's you know the most prestigious and, and the hardest uh, ultra marathon in the world. Yeah, it's got quite some reputation. I think one because of that history too because of the like you say the competitiveness of it i mean you've got people running kind of back-to-back two-hour 40 marathons which is just crazy but i think equally just because of, of what it means to the locals right you know it's um i don't know I, I i guess the people of boston kind of revered the boston marathon again partly because of its history and and partly because it's something you know, the whole city gets involved with is that what you experienced of comrades you know tell us about when you arrived in, in durban I think you arrived a week before, didn't you, to kind of acclimatise and go and see some wildlife. But just give us a feel for what it means for the locals of, of South Africa. Yeah, I mean, it is well known all over the country. They actually showed on live TV the whole race, which means 12 hours of uh, running on national television. And it is really embraced by the locals. It, I mean, it is incredible. As soon as you land at the airport, everything is comrades, everything. And everyone is asking, so are you running? So who's running? Are you supporting? And even, I mean, the supporters are get as involved and as passionate as the runners themselves. 
you see all the people, like friends and family of the runners, uh, drawing their strategy for the secondments and to to see their close ones in, in the different points of the race and, and provide support and fueling. They are very proud of their race, and the South Africans go there every year to race. You see people that have been going to this race 10 years in a row, 20 years in a row, and they are as passionate about this race as the first time they've done it, even after 20 years running it. Yeah. I think that's something that makes this race truly special, is that um, you know people collect their finishes Right, and there's quite some competition to see who can amass the most number of, of finishes. So I was astounded to hear 25,000 people into the race. Right, I mean, that's a big number for an ultramarathon of this distance. Oh, yeah. I was uh, really surprised. They have uh, 25,000 entries. Then the incredible thing is that out of 25,000, it's only 10% of international runners. And only right. 20 percent are women, which if you compare with other marathons, that's a very different split in between male and females, I thought anyway. It is true what you were saying regarding, you know, the competition of, of trying to who gets uh, 10 in a row or, or 20 in a row. Actually, one thing that is quite neat is that in your bib, you get printed the number of medals that you have. So, for example, uh, this was my first one. So I had a zero in my bib because I didn't have any medals. But then next to me in the star line, there was this guy that had a 10, and he has a green number. So the green bibs are for the ones that have done 10 consecutive comrades or more, and this guy was going to do his 11th. So all these kind of things make the race a little bit special and, and different. Um, you see how many comrades people have done and, and give you a bit of a flavor of um, the culture within the country. And, you know, everyone, their spirits and the friendliness in the race, even though it's a very competitive race, is, I think, is you cannot compare with any other race, really. No, I agree. And I think one of the things that I love about comrades is that the strength and depth at the top of the field. So there's so many athletes, uh, particularly from around Africa, that aren't well-known names, but absolutely crush this race and are achieving times well, well under six hours. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if you look at the list of fastest times ever, you know, there aren't so many names that you recognize. I think maybe Bruce Fordyce and Trayson, of course, who's got the the second fastest downtime uh, for women from the States and Ellie Greenwood. And they're by and large the only kind of you know, internationally uh, well-known names that were on those lists. It's just such a big race for Africa and for African people. And that's why I guess so many people are attracted to it. So, so tell us a little bit about how you prepared. How did you uh, get yourself ready for such a test of endurance? The first thing was that uh, for the past year, I've been logging a lot of miles. So I just wanted to make sure that my legs were strong enough to go a long way. Also, well, I did the Amsterdam Marathon in October last year. After that, I did the, as part of my training, I decided to do the Rotterdam Marathon in April as well as the London Marathon. They were just there as training rounds and just to gauge my fitness. I wasn't uh, trying to PV in Rotterdam or London because the A goal was, was Comrades. The other thing was that, of course, Comrades has 
more than 2,000 meters of elevation gain mm-hmm. in the Ab Run, and I live in Rotterdam in <laughs> the Netherlands. <laughs> so actually, there are no, no hills. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I was trying to, you know, make advantage of some of the bridges here, so making sure that I was uh, doing at least some sort of uh, hill work. And um, I was, um, yeah, going up and down bridges. That was uh, the main focus of my preparation, making sure that I had enough miles in on my legs uh, on the road, because, again, this is a road ultramarathon, mm. and trying to do as many hill workouts as I could, given that I was uh, living in a very flat area. And did you feel ready for it by the time you got to South Africa? Were you in good shape? I felt I was in good shape. However, I felt that I was not in the best shape of my... I think last year I was in better shape. Mm -hmm. I think I could have done better. And the reason why I am saying this is because I had a very good march from a training standpoint. And when you look at a race that is the first week of June, in my mind, March and April should have been my peak month. And then May, I started to go a little bit down and then you are ready for your race. In April, with the two marathons between three weeks, I lost a little bit of um, training time, let's say. I wasn't, I mean, physically, it really took a toll out of me as well as mentally more than I thought and I think my April training was not as good as it should have been. Then I picked up again in May and even though I knew I was going to be able to complete the distance, I was not sure of how fast or in what time Mm. I was going to be able to do it with. And this is a serious concern, like because um, unlike uh, the big city marathons, there are very strict and challenging cutoff times, aren't there, for 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 comrades? Yes. So the first thing is that you have to finish within 12 hours. Then there are several cutoff points along the route that if you don't make it to those points at a specific time, you will be forced to stop. Also, the challenging bit comes from the time in this race is from gun to mat. So if you are seated at the back of the field, your time starts or the clock starts for you as soon as the gun goes off. So all the time that you take to cross the start line, it counts as time that has been passing for you as well. And that makes it a bit more challenging because you are always concerned in the back of your mind, okay, you actually don't have 12 hours, you have 11 hours and 50 minutes or something like that. And this is such a conundrum because for somebody who has performed very well in the marathon, you know that there's a pace that you can run at, which is kind of comfortable and that would get you a a really good time at at Comrades. And so the the temptation, of course, is to head out at that pace. But the risk is in a race of this length, you know, 55 miles, it's very feasible that you get, you know, beyond 35 miles and something really goes wrong and you can't really run properly anymore. And at that point, have you got enough time to be able to then finish in the 12 hours because if you just look at 55 miles 12 hours seems you do the maths on that it seems quite achievable it's the inability to move if you pick up an injury or if you just hit the wall a long way out then 
that kind of death march in for 10 miles, that can take uh, hours upon hours upon hours, right? So it's a really hard race to pace. Yes. And initially I went, when I looked at my London marathon, which was not a marathon that I was training for as a goal race, I finished that in three hours, 14 minutes. And I felt that I ran in control. I finished strong and I could continue with my training. And uh, I thought, well, I should be able to do 10 hours. And when you look at 10 hours over 55 Mm. miles, it was at around 11 minutes per mile pace. And when I started running, I was like, okay, this really does not feel comfortable. And you start thinking about you have 87K to go. And yes, anything can happen in such a long race. The first marathon of that race is incredibly hard. Most of the elevation gain happened in that first marathon. When I reached the halfway point, I was actually struggling mentally thinking, do I really want to continue for another marathon or even more than a marathon? Am I going to be able to do this if I need to walk the whole way from now until the end? So yeah, I mean, mentally, apart from physically, it becomes really, really hard. And is that where the you know, the crowd and the support and the buzz around the race kind of holds you through? I mean, I've heard so much about the start of this race, that there's just this, this atmosphere whipped up, which is unlike anything you've ever experienced. Was that how it was for you? I mean, how was the morning of the race? How, how did things kick off? And then before the start? From the start, when you are standing there in your corral, is everyone is so friendly. Everyone is talking and everyone is trying to give you some comfort. When this guy realized that I was a novice, it was my first one, he started talking to me about his experience. He said to me, you need to be patient. The only thing you need to do is to be patient and you will be okay. And I kept thinking about that the whole way. It's like, okay, you need to be patient. You don't have to rush. Keep it together. And along the race, everyone talks to you, which is, for me, is an unknown. And when you go to the big city marathons, and they don't only talk to you, they actually make an effort to read your name that is printed on the bib and also to look at how many comrades you have done. And from that, they start the conversation. And the support along the road, I mean, so many people, it's, it's really incredible that everyone is so friendly. I've never experienced something like this in any of the marathons that I've done before. And it's, it's a very long distance, clearly 55 miles. Is there support throughout that distance or is it a bit patchy? They are throughout the distance. There are a couple of quiet points and it's uh-huh. all because of the access to the road. There is a lot of road closures and there are uh-huh. parts that uh, people are not able to get to. But the good thing is that you have water stations every one and a half K. So even when wow. you don't have a lot of crowd support, you have water stations with people cheering you on every one and a half K. And that actually helped me a lot mentally because I knew that every one and a half K, I was going to have a bit of a kind of mental break of thinking about something else, like grabbing some water or grabbing some Coke or looking at someone. And it's, it really helps. I've never seen a race with so many fueling or water stations and they had eight physiotherapy stations with everything you can think of and all those 43 water stations are just 
amazing. Wow. Now, that's, that's very helpful. And in terms of the people out on the course with you, do you find yourself getting into groups and chatting at all with fellow competitors as you move along or the people just kind of sit in their pain cave and kind of try and get through it best they can on their own? Everyone talks to you. I've never talked so much during a race. Ah. I think I've engaged in like 10 different conversations. People just randomly approaching me, asking me about my shoes or saying to me, congratulations on your first comrades. And they also have uh, pacing groups, which they call buses. But these buses, are I've never again seen anything like it. You can hear them from behind when they approach you. And it's 100 people running together wow. on space. And the pacer is singing and grabbing water for everyone else. It's, again, it's just only in Africa, I think. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? The fact that somebody is that good as an athlete, that they can be singing along, collecting water for people whilst running a 55-mile race. Superb. Of course, you don't want to be caught by one of the buses, I guess. You're going backwards. Did that happen? Yes, actually. Uh, Well, it happened, um, let's say, three times. I got caught by the nine-hour bus, which I didn't mind because I knew I wasn't going to be running nine hours. And then I got caught after halfway by the 10-hour bus, and that was a bit disappointing because I wanted, or I thought I was in in shape to run sub-10 hours. But I decided at that point that this race today was about finishing because any of those medals were going to be a great achievement. And I continued with with my run, and I got caught by the 10 and a half hours. That really upset me. Oh. But I, And then I thought, well, I'm going to stay with them for a little bit. They were singing and in, in a very good mood. And, and suddenly I was feeling better and wanting to go faster than they were. So I decided to go my own pace and, and continue on. And I didn't see them again, which was a, a great motivator because I kept thinking... Uh-huh. I'm not going to let them pass me again. <laughs> and I actually finished in 10 hours, uh, 13 minutes. So I got 17 wow. minutes away from them. That's amazing. What stage of the race did they pick you up originally? That was with about um, 37K to go, or like 20 miles to go. Yeah, okay. So you picked up 17 minutes in that time. That's amazing. Well done. And just just explain a bit about the, the environment. So for... I guess most of us haven't, haven't been to Africa. Even though I was fortunate enough to go to Tanzania once, but I've never been to South Africa. What's the environment you're running through like? Um, it's just like a country road and you go through different small towns and it's, it's not different to any other road from an environment standpoint. But it's, it's a beautiful setting in terms of the landscape. And uh-huh. um, yeah, I mean, you have all these people along the roads. Of course, all the Africans have shown me very friendly. There are a lot of kids on the road running around trying to cheer you on. And, and it is just an, an amazing and supportive race. You see a lot of people, a lot of kids, actually, that um, right. want to, to get a bit of what you get from the aid stations because it's something different for them. 
And I remember getting one of the granola bars and then handing them over to the kids. And they, they were really excited and happy to see that they got some sweets. And it's a truly remarkable atmosphere along the course in terms of getting also a bit of an experience of uh, what Africa is like. And such a contrast to some of the, frankly, quite negative stories you hear about South Africa and safety and lack of diversity and inclusion and so on. So, so it's really, it's, it's lovely to hear that it's such a, a positive, you know, positive emotional experience. Definitely. I mean, I would highly recommend anyone to go and do this race, but not only go there for, for the race, just to try and spend some time in the country and experience what the country is about and learning about the culture as part of doing this race. I had the opportunity to go to Johannesburg and to go to Kruger National Park just before the race. And that also put a bit of a different perspective on what I wanted to get out of the race, uh, understanding everything the country has been through. And then after I yeah, finished the race, we went to uh, Cape Town. And it's, again, such a different place. And, and, and it's, uh, the people, the friendliness, I was really not expecting that from Africa, um, the way they are towards the international runners or the, the international community. Okay. So, so for those people that might be uh, inspired by your amazing adventure, how, how do you go about getting into this race? Is it difficult? You have to uh, qualify, but the qualification is you have to have run a marathon in four hours, 15 minutes. They have a time period for that marathon to take place. And for example, for 2020, the qualifying period starts in August and it goes through uh, the 2nd of May. The race will be on June 14th. They have 25,000 entries. You can actually register without having that marathon qualification, but in order to run, you then have to prove that you have that qualification. Well, that's just a marathon distance, uh, but I'm, I'm sure you would probably recommend somebody to have run a, you know, an ultramarathon of some description before taking on comrades, would you? I would say that people should run, uh, whether even if it's not a official race, uh-huh. a race, sorry, they should run like a 50k distance and a lot of hills, definitely, because it's not an easy race to tackle. <laughs> no, absolutely, that's that, that much is clear. So, in terms of your race execution, then, or even just the whole trip. Is there anything that you do differently? I think mentally, I was very negative at the beginning, and I would try to change that. My first half probably cost me some time because I was just thinking about how long I needed to go and how hard this was feeling. I would definitely change that. Also, I think my nutrition before the race was a little bit off just because I was in in South Africa on vacation for that week. And it's a bit difficult when you're abroad to eat absolutely everything you were planning on eating ideally. It can be managed, but um, I I think I would try harder to improve on that. And in in terms of um, preparation beforehand, I would definitely not run two marathons within three weeks, (laughs) a month before the race. And uh, I would add more heels. Um, to my training. Superb. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences with us. 
fascinating. It's definitely a place that's on my bucket list. Uh, I'm sure it'll probably figure somewhere on Chris's as well in the future. So yeah, we'll all in there. And, and thanks so much, Maria. It's been great to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And hopefully um, we get to run uh, Cambridge together one day. That would be a wonderful experience. And just before you go, um, I know that you are quite active on social media. Do you want to share your Twitter handle? Uh, yes, Six Star Chaser in Twitter. And also you can find me in Strava. Awesome. Thanks a lot. See you out there. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, so confession time. I had just finished reading a bunch of Bradbury, so I, I haven't read this since I wrote it, but I'm sure it's very uh, very uh, dense and weird, like a Bradbury short story. Puzzle pieces. In my vacation house, there are puzzles. The two-dimensional kind, cut from paperboard. They come in a box. The picture on the box represents the finished product. That's how it works. You dump out the pieces into a heap, and at some point, they aspire to become that picture on the box. That kind of puzzle. One of my vacation habits when I lived through the fat part of the vacation season of life was to work on a puzzle. The house full of my family, alternatively napping, complaining, and eating, I would draw to a corner and methodically work through the simple heuristics of puzzle assembly. There is something about puzzle making that is a band-aid to the fresh wound of enforced vacation inactivity, something to do that has a discrete purpose, and that is more than nothing. Some people have seen this vacation activity of mine and wrongly assume that I like puzzles or that I am a puzzler or possess the puzzler's mind. They gift me dastardly difficult puzzles with multiple dimensions and complex geometries. They assume the puzzler's mind is a fire within me with the lust for more and unique challenges. It is not. I do kindly accept these gifts and discreetly pass them on to the second-hand charity markets, hoping they will ride karmically to find their lovers. I do not need to have my tactical intellect mocked by these impenetrable 3D monstrosities. I get no thrill from the impotent chess of it. No, my lane is the 1,000-piece puzzle. Difficult enough to require some effort, but can be safely and satisfactorily solved within 8 to 10 hours of concentrated sorting. Simple heuristics, brute force pattern matching. As each new piece is found, tested, and locked into its rightful, predetermined place, my reward is a small puff of chemical satisfaction to the neocortex, having pulled order from chaos, having made things right, and having usefully exhausted a small patch of the vacation wasteland. Then as the last piece is locked into place, you have the ennui of completion. What to do? Now you have this thing that took hours to build and represents, as it were, the product of your vacation. Can you simply and cavalierly break it up and chuck it back into the box? Would this not be a profanity of the time spent? No. 
you must put it into a frame and hang it on the wall as an icon to the holy theology of vacation. And so it is that the vacation house is home to these framed monstrosities of pithy sayings and Saturday evening post-specters, not art but test-tube-preserved memories of a time years ago where a family sweated over a hand-me-down table on which were assembled chrysanthemums and cherubic faces and banks of fathomless clouds. On the wall hangs one such puzzle, and framed one such moment, the scene is a rabbit curled sleeping under a characterized oak tree with oversized acorns. The scroll reads, Friendship is a sheltering tree, which indeed it is. One might attribute a tone of A. A. Milne to the scene. There is a woven beehive in the archaic European style under the tree, and a meandering bee as oversized as the acorns. That's not what's important about this frame puzzle. What's important about this puzzle is that it is missing a piece. You would not be able to find the missing piece yourself, but I, who was there at the end without that last piece, could point it out to you. Only God's infinite chaos knows what happened to that piece. It's not an important piece. Just a piece of the muddy background sky behind the tree above the beehive. Did the puzzle not come with that piece? Or did some trickster at the puzzle factory, in a malignant fit of pique, snatch that one piece away? I know if I worked in a puzzle factory, I might consider such action a very fine joke. I might picture the poor puzzler getting to the end and missing that nondescript piece of background sky, and I would giggle slyly to myself as I, perhaps, toss that one piece of sky into the box of a dancing bear or a carnival scene. More likely, the piece was lost in the melee of family vacation across the two to three days of construction, somehow stuck to someone and traveled out of bounds. Of course, we swear it could not be so. The construction quality standards in a vacation house being quite high. It must be fate or malfeasance or an alternate universe. It could not be our neglect. And so the puzzle hangs enshrined, and if you know where to look, there's a piece missing. The interesting thing is that the missing piece is extremely hard to see. Not because it is physically hard to see, but because our puzzle-making, pattern-matching minds refuse to see the missing piece. I struggle to find it, and I know where it is. Once you see it, it is glaringly obvious. And you can't unsee it, but go away for a minute and come back and it's gone again. Somewhere in our hardwired brain algorithms, the missing piece is filtered out. The eye sees it, but the brain does not. In the human mind, the whole pattern is more important than the pieces. We see the forest, not the trees. The missing piece in this way has a special twilight zone power to impress upon us that sometimes what our eyes see and what our brain tells us is nothing more than a convenient truth, a spackling over of the missing pieces of life. How many other things in our day-to-day -day life do we unquestioningly absorb without looking at the details, 
How many truths in this world are poorly assembled pieces of fact and circumstance? How many of these truths are just sandcastles built by our minds to save us the difficulty of dissemination? The late afternoon sun lances through the window to enhalo a sleeping rabbit on the wall with a fat, harmless bee and cartoonish acorns. The birds sing in the real oak trees outside the open screen. Vacation traffic in hot and sated cars head home to their patterns. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have run the uphill course to the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-412. We'll see you at the rock concert in Paradise City. Got a couple nice long runs and rides in this week on vacation down the Cape and back up here at home. I did my traditional long run on the beach in Chatham, Chatham Point, Chatham Light. And I went out on the 4th itself, the 4th of July, the Thursday, and the beaches were just jammed with people. Usually, once I get a mile or so down the beach, I'm pretty much alone. You know, except for those people who like taking long walks on the beach. You know, those people. Just me and them. But on the 4th of July, people were coming out of the woodwork, and they take boats out to the far places where usually only I can get to, and they hang out all over the place with their coolers and umbrellas and boats and stuff. And at one point, there was a seal on the beach, apparently injured, probably by a great white shark, if I had to guess. And some guy was waving his arms and yelling at me, I guess, to not run by the seal. And I'm like, chill out there, Ranger Rick. It's a seal, not a unicorn. And when I came back the other way, on my way back, they had the seal EMTs out there working on it. There's a lot of seals and a lot of sharks on the Cape now. I ran out of beach almost exactly at five miles, which gave me a nice tidy 10 for that outing. And I timed it well, too. I got out just after high tide, and that means the tide is going out, and you get a nice strip of hard sand to run on, and a lot more beach to run on as well. I got out this weekend as well, after I got back for a nice 18-plus mile trail run. Felt okay. It was a little hard at the end, but it's supposed to be, you know? I have to bring my volume up for the races I'm running at the end of this summer. So, all in all, I got a good mental rest. I read a couple of books. The best one was a Bradbury, Ray Bradbury collection of short stories from the 70s. Great writer, Ray Bradbury. The better read among you may smell a bit of Bradbury in my writing this week. One of the books I'm working my way through is The Happiness Curve by Jonathan Rausch. And he basically says that the science shows everyone's life arc is about the same. Three pieces. You're happy when you're young. You're miserable when you're in the middle of it, in the prime of your life, for the most part. And then, in the last bit, the middle-aged forward bit, you get happy again because, I guess, you just don't really care anymore. But I, <laughs> there's a couple things we can take from that. One is that your happiness is different depending on what phase of life you're in. And another is that, on average, you know, everybody has about the same experience. So if you're feeling a little restless, a little disconcerted in your middle age, don't worry about it. You're supposed to. So there you go. Hang in there. It gets better. And 
I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Or did some trickster at the puzzle factory in a maniglet? <laughs>